This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. We're in Nehemiah chapter number 13. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 1, Nehemiah chapter uh, number 13. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people. And And there found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Because they met... Not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib the priest had the oversight of the chair of the house of God was allied to Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of corn, the new wine and the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem from the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes king of Babylon came I unto the king And after certain days I obtained leave of the king. And it came to pass, and I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chamber, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were for every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. And I made the treasurers over the treasuries, Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites, Padiah. And next unto him was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah. For they were counted faithful and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Remember me, O my God. Concerning this, and wipe not out the good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. In those days saw I in Judah some treading uh, wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses. There's also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. And there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath of the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended 
with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants set I at the gates that there should no burden brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and the sellers of all of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates uh, to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, can this also. And spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I haste him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, every one in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come again into uh, your word. We pray that the word of God would speak to us and that the Holy Spirit of God would be our teacher and our instructor. We pray this in Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, some of you have been with us when we began looking at this chapter a few weeks ago on a Wednesday evening. And as we come to chapter number 13, we're reminded that Nehemiah had been gone from the city. We are not sure what the duration of the time is, but we understand it was a significant enough uh, of a time frame uh, that things declined greatly in his absence. Things declined. Remember, Nehemiah was called of God. Nehemiah was sent by the Lord, and God worked miraculously. Uh, in the circumstances to bring Nehemiah to Jerusalem because there was a great work that needed to be done. 
the walls of the city needed to be rebuilt. And we understand that uh, there were enemies who were living in Jerusalem and they were happy to be in Jerusalem because while they were in control and while they had influence, Jerusalem lost its distinctiveness. You know, the world does not mind religion. The world doesn't even mind us preaching about Jesus. As, as we preach the kind of Jesus the world approves. But when we begin to preach the Bible Jesus, when we begin to preach the word of God, when we begin to stand uh, on the truths of God's word, this is what we know. The enemy will not be happy. The Bible said that when Sanballat and Tobiah saw that there was a man that was come to seek the welfare of Jerusalem, it grieved them exceedingly. We need to understand that we have a very, very real enemy. And he wants to distort, he, he wants to twist, he, he, he doesn't mind a little bit of you tipping your hat to God just as long as you don't get too carried away with it. And so God used Nehemiah and the people and they labored together and they built the wall in 52 days. There were great reforms that were carried out under the leadership of Nehemiah. And he set some people in positions and he left for them some guidelines to help them keep things in order in his absence. But while he was absent, it is obvious as we read through chapter 13 that things got out of order. There was a lot of things the man had to deal with. And we began to look at those things, and there were four specific problems that we pointed out, and we'll just review them, and then we'll move forward tonight. When Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, there are four distinct problems that he's going to deal with. Number one, he's going to deal with the problem of evil alliances. The problem of evil alliances. We don't have to revisit all of this, but we understand that uh, uh, while he was away, Eliashib the priest, having oversight, the Bible says in verse 4, of the chamber of the house of our God was allied unto Tobiah. Tobiah is the man who resisted Nehemiah and the people at every hand. And now we find that uh, Eliashib the priest he, ha he is allied to Tobiah, and notice in verse 5, he prepared for him a great chamber in the house of God. Where aforetime, the Bible says, they lay laid the offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of corn, the new wine, and the oil, which, which was intended to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. And so here we find these chambers that were designated to be uh, receiving areas and storage areas of the offerings of the people, which we're going to find later they haven't been bringing. And these were to uh, meet the needs of the Levites and the singers, to, to minister to them so that they could be um, occupied and, 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 and giving their, their energies, giving themselves to the work of the ministry. But because, because neglect, the chambers were empty. And so maybe Eliashib had a good idea. I don't know. I don't think it was a good idea. It was certain that Nehemiah didn't think it was a good idea. But maybe he thought it was a good idea. 
Well, you know, Nehemiah was a little bit hard on Sanballat and Tobiah, and maybe to help us build goodwill in the community, maybe I, since we don't have anything in these rooms, let's just allow him to come in. I remember what Nehemiah said to those men when they began to oppose them. He said, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. There's a clear line of separation. And who we allow to influence us. And who we allow to get in our ear. And, and what things we allow to get into our hearts. And so here's the problem. The problem of evil alliances. Then we see in verses 10 through 13. The problem of a forsaken house. And that house was not the houses of the individuals who lived in that city. The house that was forsaken was the house of God. In verse number 10, I perceived the portion of the Levites had not been given, given for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled one to his field. Then contended I the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in place. Then verse 12 brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. You see what happened is the people forsook their responsibility in giving. They decided that somewhere along the line what they needed was more important than what God expected and required of them. And therefore they stopped giving. And when they stopped giving, the Levites and the singers and the priests were not able uh, any longer to stay in the work of the temple, the house of God. They had to go out in the fields and they had to uh, try to earn favor, uh, not favor, but they tried to earn uh, food and, and, and work the fields and get a job so that they could feed their families. We all understand this. And it is because the house of God was forsaken. So we see the problem of evil alliances. We see the problem of a forsaken house. Then we see the problem of a profaned Sabbath. In verse, in verse 15 through 22, we find that the city was, he was open for business on the Sabbath. And that was strict, strictly the law of God. The merchants were coming in and they were making money on the Sabbath day. And so Nehemiah said, wait a minute. We're going to close the gates. And then when he noticed that uh, the merchants were hanging outside the walls of the city, you know, dangling their goods in front of the people saying, hey, if you need anything, we'll help you. The Bible says he looked at them and said, hey, fellas, I'm about to lay hands on you. And so they, they, they didn't come around anymore. A profaned Sabbath. A forsaken house. Evil alliances. Then we come to verse number 23 and we see another problem. It is the problem of a mixed marriage or mixed marriages, plural. In those days also I saw, or saw I rather, Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each of the people. And I contended with them. And cursed them, and smote them, and plucked, and plucked their hair, and, and made them swear by God, God, and ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons for yourselves. And then he reminds them of what happened to Solomon, who was filled with wisdom, who was filled with wealth, but his heart was turned away from the Lord because the Bible says he loved many strange women. 
The term that is used here is outlandish women. And what this means is that they are women who do not know God and who do not fear God. They are women who worshipped pagan gods. And because of Solomon's affection for them, more than his affection for the Lord, his heart was turned away from the true and the living God to worship these false gods. And as we looked at this problem of mixed marriages, we, we understand that uh, the Ammonite and the Moabite was, uh, had intermingled with the Jews. And we, we, as we come to this text, we, we, we deal with it in, in the context of our own culture and where we are. And what we find is that what, what God is dealing with here is not the difference that is the different difference of their race or their ethnicity. What God is dealing with is the difference of their heart, the difference of who they worship. And these people did not worship the true and the living God. But against that backdrop, you've got a beautiful story, don't you? Of a Moabitess girl whose name was Ruth. And the Bible said that a Moabite will not come into the congregation of the Lord forever. But yet, yet here's a Moabite girl who comes not only into the congregation of the Lord, but who becomes a mother of one that will be a... Uh, in the seed, in the line of the seed of the Savior. A Moabite. How'd that happen? Because she made this statement. Your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. You see, God got a hold of that girl. And he changed her from the end to ends out. And she became somebody. Somebody. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Can I tell you that old Ruth became new. God made her new. And so we understand this is not just, a, this is not just an ethnicity uh, issue that God is dealing with. It's not a skin color issue that God is dealing with. This is a heart issue that God is dealing with. And it's one that Nehemiah took very, very seriously because he, he really, really gave those guys a hard time. Verse 25, he contended with them and cursed them. That doesn't mean he cussed them. But he let them know what was going on and their standing and what sin they had brought and what reproach they had brought to the people of God. And he smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. I can imagine that maybe some of the guys, you know, that were trying to be politically correct thought maybe Nehemiah went a little too far there. But these are the problems that he encounters as he comes back. The pro problem of evil alliances, the problem of a forsaken house, the problem of a profane Sabbath, and the problem of mixed marriages. And what we find is that whether it be in the church or whether it be in our homes, there's always going to be a tendency for us to begin to ease up, for us to get a little slack, and for the devil to get in. And God sends this man, Nehemiah, 
to setting things in order. And we're going to look at four things this evening as we go further into this text, as we go beyond the points that I've given you. We're going to look at four things this evening that are essentials of godly leadership. Four essentials of godly leadership. Because there's no doubt as we study the life of Nehemiah that he is a godly leader. Now you don't have to be a pastor to be a godly leader. You know, we need godly leaders today. I'm thankful that we have staff. I'm thankful that we have deacons. I, I, I'm thankful that we have Sunday school teachers and ushers and, and greeters and folks who are going to work in Bible school and folks who are in the nursery and folks who are in the choir. All those positions are leadership positions. They're spiritual leadership positions. And uh, if you are a man married with children, you, are, you have a, a very special spiritual leadership position. You are the leader of your family. You are responsible to God for what goes on in your home. It's a very solemn responsibility, isn't it, gentlemen? But that is the responsibility that God has given to us. And by the way, you, you wives and you mothers, God has made you leaders. You, you have uh, the most precious times uh, with your children. You have the greatest impact upon their lives. And so uh, God has called all of us to be spiritual leaders. Not to the same degree, certainly not in the same office, but we are to demonstrate spiritual leadership, especially to a lost and dying world. And many of the problems that Nehemiah had to deal with in this chapter, he would not have had to deal with them if the people in those areas had dealt with them first. And so may God teach us some things as we look at these. Let's, let's look at them. First of all, uh, number one, the essentials of godly leadership, conviction. Conviction. You know, we live in a world of beliefs. This is what I believe. I guess. Well, I don't necessarily believe that, but let me tell you what I, I do believe. That's sort of the discourse of the day, isn't it? But we're not so much interested necessarily in what people believe. We need to understand in what convictions they hold to. What convictions they hold to. Because if a man or a woman is going to face the, 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 the awful resistance and, and, and the uh, adversaries that Nehemiah faced. And by the way, you face those adversaries and you face that resistance. If we're going to face it, if we're, if we're going steadfast and true, then we have to have, have conviction. Conviction. Conviction is something that we not only believe, but we hold to firmly. Conviction is something that we cannot be shaken from, that we cannot let go of. It is a conviction. For example, in our church, we have a conviction that the Bible is the word of God. That is a conviction that we hold to. We have a, have a conviction that Jesus Christ started the church. And that he uh, gave to the church 
uh, its ordinances, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. That's a conviction we hold to. We, uh, we, we also believe that Jesus Christ gave the church uh, its marching orders. That is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We have a conviction about that. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we believe in evangelism. That's why we have Bible school. It's not because somebody said, I think it's a good idea. It's because God said it. It's because we believe it and we hold to it. It is a conviction. It is deeply held and we cannot let it go. And we want to be leaders in our homes, in our church, in our community. Then we must have convictions. Now, leadership starts with purpose. What is our purpose? It is God's purpose. The only purpose we have is God's purpose. And then leadership is driven by beliefs and convictions which lead to actions. The reason that we do the things that we're doing as a church ought to be because we believe it's what God wants done and because we have a condition that it needs to be done. And therefore, we, we must be in obedience to it and move to act. And so leaders must think in convictional terms. Whether it be our Christian school, whether it be any ministry that we have, uh, we must be based not on whims, not on fancies, but on convictions. I had a pastor call me not too long ago and he wanted to thank me for our Christian school. He wanted to thank me for the positions that we take and, and no, they're not always popular, right? He wanted to thank me. And in his experience, he's been around some people who, uh, who sort of felt like everything under the sun was up for discussion and any decision that was made could be debated about and anything was up for grabs and many of those things that went up for grabs changed. And this man said to me, he said, I just want you to know, I appreciate where you stand. Boy, that's encouraging, isn't it? That's a conviction. And, and Nehemiah had convictions. He had a conviction about the Lord's house. He had a conviction about uh, God's people giving. He had a conviction about who those kids ought to marry and who they ought not to marry. He had a conviction in his heart about the commerce that was taking place inside the walls of Jerusalem and how the people's hearts were turned away from God and to themselves and to their own materialism. He had a conviction about it and he was willing to stand by that conviction. It may not have been popular and it most likely wasn't. But if we're going to see God do what God wants to do, if we're going to protect with the help of the Holy Ghost what God has given us, then we must have conviction. Not just opinions, not just whims, not some article that we just recently read or something that somebody told us while we were on our morning walk. No, it is what God says in his holy, infallible, inspired word. And we believe it. And we hold to it. It is our conviction. Leaders must be passionate. I think we see some passion out of Nehemiah here. And it must be discerning. And we must be teachers. We must explain to people 
what it is that we believe and why it is that we hold to these truths. I'm sure as parents, you've had those days, right? Why can't I do what everybody else does? I mean, my friends are doing that. Why can't I? That's when we have to have conviction and we have to explain to our children that they're not somebody else's kids. They're our kids, right? And we don't live according to somebody else's philosophy of life. We live according to the truths of God's word. And we're not perfect, and we don't always get it right. But one thing we want them to know is that we love them, and we love God, and those two things do not conflict. And God knows what's best for them. And so we must be teachers. And, and then leaders have to make decisions. I found out that who makes the decision is not always the most, most popular guy. When the decision lies at your desk, sometimes people don't like the decision you make. And, and you know, we all want to be liked, most of us. Some people, I don't think really care if anybody likes them or not. But for the most part, we all like to be liked, don't we? And if we make a decision that somebody doesn't like, it has a tendency to upset us. Like, why don't they understand what I'm doing here? But we have to learn, learn that we make decisions not based on what's popular. We make decisions not based on what, on what people want. We make decisions based on what God says. That's godly leadership. And it requires conviction. Conviction. Let me give you the second one. Godly leadership requires character. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter number 5. Nehemiah chapter number 5. Character. Nehemiah, in the process of rebuilding the walls, he's dealing with so many things. In chapter 5 and verse number 1, there's something that comes up not externally, in other words, not something that's happening as a result of the work of Sanballat and Tobiah, but this is something that happens internally in chapter one, or in ver or chapter five, rather, in verse one. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against the, their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, we, our sons, our daughters are many, therefore we take up corn for them, them that we may eat and live, some also there were that said, we have mortgaged, mortgaged lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn, corn because of the dearth. So there's something going on. There is a, a, a recession financially going on, and there are people who are in great debt. Verse 4, there, we, <clears throat> there were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute. We, in other words, they had, to buy, they had to borrow money to pay their taxes. And that upon our lands and vineyards, yet now our flesh is the flesh of our brethren, our children is their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons, our daughters, to be servants. And some of our daughters are into bondage already. Neither is it in our, in our part to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Verse 6, and I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Here's what's taking place. The people are poor. The taxes are high. The famine is on. 
and they're mortgaging their lands and their properties. In fact, their sons and their daughters are being sold into servitude to their brethren. In other words, one group of the Jews is profiting and oppressing, profiting off of, of oppressing another group, taking advantage of the financial opportunities at hand. Then we come to verse number 14, and we read the words of Nehemiah. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year, even unto the two and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor, but the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken uh, of them wine beside 40, 40 shekels of silver. Yea, their servants bear rule over the people. But so, so did not I because of the fear of God. Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall. Neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered together under the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers beside those that came unto us among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for, the, for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me. And one in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor. Because the bondage was heavy upon this people. Verse 19, think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. <clears throat> In other words, Nehemiah, he knew where the roads were going. He knew where the electric company was moving in. He knew where the builders wanted to put their subdivisions. He could have bought the lands. He could have... Uh, in other words, taking advantage of what he knew was happening and he could have profited himself off the misery of the people. But he didn't do it. He, didn't do it. he could have charged them user like their own brother, own brother doing, but he didn't do it. He, he could have legitimately eaten at their charge, in other words, their taxes sustaining him so that he can feed his uh, group, his, his, his people, but he didn't do that. In fact, he fed many of them. Why? Because he had character. He had integrity. He didn't get into the work of God to profit himself. He got into the work of God to glorify God and to honor God. Is a person of character. I think about Samuel uh, when it's when it, it's uh, when when he is meeting before the people, and of course Saul uh, is is uh, has been uh, ordained as the king, and um, Saul is is or Samuel rather is sort of giving his his farewell message to the people. That will certainly not be his final act at all, but it is one of his farewell addresses, and he says to the people when he gathers them together. Whose ox have I taken? Whose ass have I taken? In other words, uh, Samuel is reminding the people by asking them, in what way have I done anything to damage or hurt you or to take advantage of the position that God gave me as a judge and a prophet and a priest? And the people said, nothing. You see, integrity and character is essential for godly leadership. We will never be perfect. 
Moms and dads will never be perfect. Pastors will never be perfect. But we must have character and integrity. And if we're going to be godly leaders, we have to have to have character. Now, I want to tell you, there's nobody who can tell us how inconsistent we are like our kids, right? Yeah, they're really good at it. They can pinpoint all of our inaccuracies. And God uses them often. But let me tell you something, young person. Your parents are not perfect, but if they love God and they love you, they're people of integrity, and you need to follow them. We must have integrity and character. We read another example of this in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 13. I won't take the time to do it. But here's a, an, an essential characteristic of godly leadership. Conviction, character. The third one, courage. Courage. Do you think it was easy for Nehemiah to go into that city after he'd been gone and see what was happening and to go and address those things that he addressed? It was not easy. He had to have courage. He had to have holy boldness. And may God help us to have courage. You know, it takes some, some courage to tell people no, doesn't it? We're just not going to do that. We're just not going to do that. This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what we have in our home. This is the thing that we do in our free time. This is what we do with our money. These are the people that we associate with. These are the people that you're going to spend time with. We are not going to change that. That takes some courage. And you have to be willing to be misunderstood and misrepresented sometimes to have that kind of courage. But here's a man who had it. You see, we learn here that Nehemiah, though he was angry, he sinned not. This is not a record of Nehemiah's temper tantrum, chapter number 13. This is, this is the record of a man who had holy indignation and dealt with it in the way in which it should have been dealt with. He did not deal with the people at large. He dealt with the leaders who had failed in their responsibilities. In other words, he dealt with the people who knew better. And despite what they knew, didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, Nehemiah feared God and not man. Nehemiah was bold, not because he was confident in himself, but because he was confident in God. When Moses was preparing a leader named Joshua, when David was preparing uh, the next king named Solomon, when Paul was preparing the next a pastor named Timothy. They all three said these things to those who would follow them. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. If you want to know what a real man looks like, he's a man with conviction and he's a man who's willing to stand on what he believes in. If you want to know what a real, what a religious woman looks like, it's not somebody who will, who will march in, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. for the head of a woman to have an, an abortion and who will use lewd words and vulgar language. Oh, no. It is a woman who will stand for truth and right. That takes courage, my friend. And may God give us courage. Nehemiah had courage. He was willing to enter into the conflict and contend for the truth. Isn't that what Jude told us to do? Earnestly contend for the faith. 
which was once delivered to the saints. Even Paul, when he saw that Peter was carried away with the dissimulation of Jews. In other words, here's Peter. He's, he sees that these Jews are they're holding on to Judaism. And uh, they, they, they think, well, now, wait a minute. We, we, we're Christians, yes, but we're also Jews. And so there, there's a moment there of, of, of compromise. It wasn't really compromise, but wanting to appear to be something that they necessarily weren't. And Paul got stirred up about it. And he said, I withstood them to the face. I withstood them to the face. That's the kind of courage and boldness that we must have. And it, by the way, don't go out here tomorrow and find your coworker out on the job and tell them they're a reprobate. <laughs> We're talking about what's taking place in the context of God's people and God's house and our families and demonstrating godly leadership. So we have some essentials. Conviction, character, courage. Let me give you the last one. Constancy. Constancy. And he stuck with it. It means he didn't quit. Now I think about Nehemiah and, and I think about all that God used him to do. It was amazing. All the battles he endured. All the things that he dealt with. And yet, God allowed him and the people to experience and realize great victories. Now, you know what the, the ten years after that is to let, let up. Right? To take it easy. Boy, we can get in trouble when we do that. Remember when David didn't go to battle that day? He was on the rooftop. We, we, we sometimes we just say, you know what? I've fought enough battles. I, I've been through this enough. I've served the Lord long enough. I've done that. I've been there, done that before. It's time for me to take ease in Zion. Uh, having been here for 10 years, uh, just in that sh short time, I, I've realized this own temptation in my life, or, or this temptation in my own life, rather. Just, hey, what's the big deal? Maybe some things can slide. It's okay. No, that's not what Nehemiah said. That's not the approach he took. He was constant. He was consistent. He stuck with it. And oh, how we need that watchfulness in our homes, in our own lives, in our relationships. We need that constancy. We need to be willing to engage the enemy and, and into the conflict. Because one of the tactics of the devil is to just simply wear us down. How many of you parents know that? I'm not saying your children are the devil, by the way. <laughs> but just to wear us down. But this man was constant. Hey, he was he was row. I like the way he led. He told those guys, he said, 
look, we're closed on the Sabbath day. Then he put people in charge. He said, you make sure these gates are closed at a certain time. And you're the one responsible to make sure it's done. And you get some people to help you get that done. I mean, this guy was thorough. He was diligent. He was diligent. Look, we're not going to be what God would have us to be. We're not going to have the church we, we need to have. We're not going to have the family we ought to have if we're not diligent. If we're not thorough. If we're not watchful. Look, we can't be slipshod and not intellectual about the work of God. He was thorough. He was watchful. He was diligent. And he didn't quit. Praise God he didn't quit. Do you know nothing will ever be done by people who quit? Nothing. The only way we'll ever see anything done is if we stick to it. And that depends on our convictions. Do we have them? There was never a question in my house. Never a question in my house. I'm not talking about the house I lead. I'm talking about the house that my, my father led and my mother led. It was never a question, are we going to go to church? It's never a question. I couldn't stay home. You've heard me say this before. I could never stay home on Sunday night and watch the wonderful world of Disney. <clears throat> it wasn't a question. There were certain things we didn't have to have to question. We just knew this is where we stood. Character. We're not perfect people. We mess up, and we're going to. <clears throat> and by the way, if you think your parents have to be perfect to tell you anything, you're wrong about that. You're wrong about that. Character. Courage. And constancy. May God help us to have the church God wants us to have. And may God help us to have the home that God wants us to have. Hey, listen, how about in this youth group? That's right, I'm talking to you right here in the middle section. How about in this youth group? What kind of youth group are we going to have? <clears throat> well, you know, we can have two youth groups. Did you know that? We can have the youth group in, that everybody sees in the official capacity. And then we can have who we really are. By the way, that's not just exclusive for young people, right? That's for all of us. But who's going who's to have the conviction in, in this? A great week at Pensacola. I've heard reports. The sermons were great. The activities were great. Man, thank God for that. God's speaking to people's hearts. Thank God for that. But who's going to have the conviction? Who in this group is going to have the conviction? When somebody takes a conversation away, it shouldn't go. Who's going to have the conviction? Who's going to have the character? Who's going to have the courage? And who's going to stick with it? You know, we go to camp year after year, time after time, conference after conference. <clears throat> and, and this is invariably what happens is my experience as a young person. I'm, I, know, I know experience of many of these young people. We go to these meetings and God speaks to us 
but it seems like the residue only lasts for just a short time. When are we going to get beyond the residue and allow God to do a work in our hearts? When are we going to say, you know what? I believe this. I believe this. And I want to honor God. And I want to do what God says. And have enough about us that when nobody's looking and nobody in front of us and there's no mass of young people at the altar that we decide we're going to do it no matter what because it's right. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. Godly leadership. And may the Lord help us. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.